From our internships through our lives of professional practice, one commodity has been more valuable than money, sleep. You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Gregory Belenke. Dr. Belenke is a research professor and director of the Sleep and Performance Research Center at Washington State University. Today, we're going to be talking about sleep, health, and work issues. So Greg, thanks for uh, being with us today. We appreciate that. Let's start off with a little perspective. What is sleep and why do we need it? Well, sleep is important for productivity, effectiveness, safety, health, well-being. And despite this, it's uh, still, relatively speaking, poorly understood. We know that in terms of performance and therefore safety, that it's really total sleep time that makes the difference, not the distribution of the various sleep stages and uh, not when you get the sleep. So as we'll cover later, naps are excellent way to increase your total sleep time up to seven, eight hours, which is what we're required for most people to sustain good performance. How long has this been an official area of study? I know when I was in medical school, uh, we didn't talk much about that. Well, that's an excellent question. The first behavioral science study of the effect of sleep deprivation on human performance was Patrick and Gilbert in 1896. And they showed, not surprisingly, that total sleep deprivation impaired performance on simple uh, tasks that they were using. Since then, this result has been repeated hundreds of times with tasks of varying sophistication and complexity. You mentioned just a minute ago that seven or eight hours, so the total time of sleep is what's important. Are there normal variations in sleep requirements between individuals or between groups of people or even at different ages? This is a very interesting question. There certainly is a variation in how much sleep people consistently will take epidemiological studies show this very clearly. Whether this reflects true difference in sleep need, that's another question. It's probable that the range of habitual sleep times reflects people who are deliberately sort of shortchanging themselves and that probably the requirement for sleep is tighter than the distribution of actual sleep times would suggest. Interesting. How about age? How about at our different times in our lives? This is such a fascinating thing. Children and, and adults before middle age have sort of very much the same sleep-wake cycle with children sleeping a little bit more. But in adolescence, there's a phase shift in the circadian rhythm, and you tend to have your peak and temperature be later, and you want to go to bed later and get up later. So this phenomenon in adolescence actually isn't psychological, really, but physiological based in the circadian rhythm, the normal pattern, the normal sort of childhood pattern reemerges in your 20s, and then you sleep well, typically for men anyway, until they're beginning a middle age, which uh, unfortunately, I, I'm sorry always to say this, begins about age 35. And what you see from 35 on, more in men than in women, is an aging of the sleep-wake cycle, less ability to fall asleep, less ability to stay asleep. And this does not probably represent a decreased need for sleep, but rather 
a decreased ability to get sleep. Women have sleep problems typically around the time of menopause and thereafter, but these typically resolve, and many women reach advanced age sleeping very well. So many of us, Greg, take care of a geriatric population. Can we tell them that these sleep issues are, quote, normal for them? Well, you know, this is a very interesting question because it's clear that sleep loss, sleep restriction in younger people leads to inflammatory response, leads to glucose dysregulation, and increases blood pressure. It's likely that it has similar effects in in older people, and it's possible, and this is, you know, a hypothesis that's out there, that part of the health problems, the chronic health problems, the mild cognitive impairment and so on that emerge with aging could reflect actual changes in the sleep-wake cycle as sort of being primary in causing these things. I mean, that's, that's a hypothesis, but it's very well worth pursuing at this point. Sounds like those kinds of things are going to be pursued at laboratories like your own. Well, yes, and we're very interested in (laughs) looking at just sort of basic, simple things like in a healthy elderly population, does sleep time in the natural home environment correlate with performance? You are listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. And I'm here with Dr. Gregory Belenke, and we're discussing sleep, health, and work issues. Greg, talk a little bit about your lab or laboratory studies. How, how do you go about measuring sleep or sleepiness? Well, there are two basic ways to measure sleep. One is sort of what we standard think of, and that's electrophysiologically. We instrument people with electrodes and do polysomnography, which includes recording EEG, EOG, which is electrooculogram, eye movement, and EMG, which is muscle movement and tone. And these three things allow us to determine whether a person is awake or in the various stages of sleep. That's, of course, in the laboratory or in the sleep medicine clinic. And it's a fairly elaborate process of instrumenting people and putting them in bed and recording them. But, you know, if we think back... The salient characteristic of sleep is lack of movement, uh, inactivity. That's how we certainly behaviorally tell if someone is asleep. And there are devices now currently available commercially, actographs they're called, that actually measure physical movement. And with these, you can quantify not sleep stage distribution, but again, it's total sleep time that determines performance. And the actograph gives very nice measure of total sleep time, and they're wristwatch-sized devices, and they will record for two, three weeks, upwards of a month, a continuous record of uh, activity in one-minute bins, and from this you can very reliably, as reliably as with uh, electrophysiological measures, polysomnography, score wake and sleep. So that's the way you do it in the field, and in the lab you use the gold standard polysomnography. How about a tendency for people to fall asleep or the propensity, how sleepy they are? How do you go about doing that? You look at two things, and this is really primarily in the laboratory. You look at the obvious thing, which is how quickly people fall asleep, and you do the multiple sleep latency tests. You put people in a quiet room, bed, have them stretch out, uh, instruct them to fall asleep, and close the door, turn out, turn out the lights and close the door, and then watch and score uh, how long it takes them to fall asleep. And that's a good measure of sleepiness. 
And another correlate, of course, is performance, and in particular, lapses in attention during a performance task. These are indicators of increased sleepiness. If you're going to bed at your normal time at night, what would your mean sleep latency be? And what about if you're unusually tired? Gary, I have to say, not being a sleep medicine specialist, I'm not sure what the exact things on the MSLT, the multiple sleep latency test, are, but it seems to me that sort of anything less than five minutes is very sleepy, and that if you're really topped off, if you're an adolescent who's gotten 14, 15 hours sleep the night before, you will not fall asleep for the 20 minutes of the test. Well, apparently you haven't met my son, who's a teenager. Let's talk a little bit about the workplace now, and specifically things like shift work. We have these people like yourself, laboratories that are studying sleep and and sleepiness. I assume you've been uh, involved in some questions or research about uh, our 24-hour society and how shift work might impact a patient's ability to sleep. Yes, this is, again, a, a very interesting and very important area of occupational health. Bear in mind that there are a number of different kinds of shifts. There are early morning shifts, standard daytime shifts, afternoon and evening shifts, and night shifts. It turns out that the shift that gets you the most sleep, on average, it's afternoon and evening shift workers who sleep the most in the United States. Uh, Everyone else is to a degree shortchanged, but in particular, people working the night shift. And the reason for this is that they work through the night when they would normally be sleeping, And then they try and sleep when the body is signaling them that they should be awake as body temperature is rising across the day because of the circadian rhythm. So the typical shift worker who gets off at 7, goes to bed at 8, will not be able to sleep much beyond 1 p.m. So typically a shift worker gets 5.1 hours of sleep. In effect, shift workers are chronically jet-lagged because they never resynchronize. They never adapt to the night schedule because the primary thing that sets the circadian rhythm that sinks it is light exposure. And the bright light exposure remains normal daytime. And they're certainly exposed to it on the drive home. So the clock remains set to daytime even though the person's schedule is reversed. Do you think most workers know they're being shortchanged on sleep? Yes, yes. Most people who work shift work uh, do complain of what we call excessive daytime sleepiness and also excessive sleepiness on shift. Mm-hmm. I want to thank Dr. Gregory Belenke, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing sleep, health, and work issues. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals.